In a world full of smart devices, shouldn't your printer be smart too? It is with HP+. These printers know when they're running low, so you always get the ink you need delivered right when you need it. Plus, you save up to 50% on ink, so you can print whatever you want, as much as you want, anytime you want. Huh, that is pretty smart. Get six months free of instant ink when you choose HP+. Conditions apply. Visit hp.com smart for details. In a world full of smart devices, isn't it about time your printer got smart too? Now printing is smart with HP+. And the HP Smart app is how it all happens. You can print from your phone with just a tap, no matter where you are, even from your garage slash home office slash yoga studio. Huh, that is smart. HP+. Learn more about smart printing at hp.com slash smart. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing, my chance to talk with artists, policymakers, and performers, to hear their stories, what inspires their creations, what decisions changed their careers, what relationships influenced their work. Here's a quote. Who died and made you Dear Abby? It was an insult no matter how you spun it, but a particularly fraught one for Philip Galanis after the debut of his New York Times advice column in 2008. Dear Abby had been his guiding force as a boy, growing up with a distant father and a mother who refused to accept that her son was gay. Dear Abby left him with nothing but answers. Some people might have given up, but Galanis, who had already sailed through Yale, undergrad and law school, isn't one of them. He kept writing the column, kept answering questions about bullying, ex-boyfriends, and sibling rivalry, and nine years later, he still is. It's one of many endearing qualities the warm and witty lawyer-turned-writer possesses, quiet refusal to be anything but himself. In his weekly column, Social Cues, he pushes readers to do the same, even if that means temporarily suspending the truth. I lie like a rug. And generally, um, I mean, I would never lie, you know, I would never become a fraud. Mm -hmm. I'd never lie about... To steal. Yeah, yeah, to steal from someone. But to smooth over something, I'd lie every single day of the week and twice on Sunday, definitely. But when you're in a conflict with your significant other, I find... I lie. Some (laughs) of the time, I'm lying to just cast a spray of ether over the whole room so we can all rest. Well, I'm very defensive, so it doesn't really even occur to me. It not occur. It doesn't sink in that I am wrong, sometimes for days or weeks later, but you can't have a fight going on with your partner for weeks until it actually occurs to you. So I do. I get down immediately, and I lie. And then... And I say, I'm I'm sorry. sorry. It's all my fault. (laughs) And then most of the time when he says to me, you know, that was really shitty what you did, I'll... Three days later, four days later, it will it will hit me, and I'll go. You know, yeah, that's right. But growing up, I think the way that I did, the first impulse had to be I was not to blame. You were I was in my house. It was who was to blame. Right. Everybody's running to the to the blameless corner, and I don't think my mother ever apologized. One single time in her life for anything. That's so funny. Never. 
And when I was in therapy, when I started to really, you know, become an adult in my 20s and 30s, thanks to a, a guy who lives, you know, right around the corner from us, and I would go to see him twice or three times a week, and he would say, before we get anywhere, you've got to get angry with your mother. You've got to go tell her or tell me or tell someone all the things that you've got pent up inside of you. And so I did it with him. And he said, I think you need to go do this one thing with her. And I went to her. And it was about an episode that happened when I was, you know, maybe seven or eight or something like that. It was when it first started to occur to her that she had a gay kid on her hands. And she was really, you know, in the, what would have in the seven, early 70s, you wouldn't be thrilled about it. But she was going to always be in my corner, but she wasn't happy. So I was shipped to a shrink. How did she shrink. make that clear? How did she make By shipping you to a shrink. By she made that clear to you by saying, you need to go talk to somebody. Right. And by also encouraging, I mean, it starts in very subtle ways. Like, you know, have you ever thought about maybe being the principal when you play school as opposed to, you know, the home ec teacher <laughs> or something like yeah. that? Pouring tea for everyone. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so it starts that way and then it gets to like all of a sudden Coaching you. Coaching. Yeah. The, the teddy bear collection disappears one day because – and, 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 and in its place is a, bl- a bunch of baseball cards and you've never picked up a mitt in your life. Right. And but so I go and, and say to her, I say to her, I say to her this thing that I remember that I remember really clearly. This ugly episode we had on the drive to this shrink. This is in Vermont, in the wilds of Vermont. And she, to her credit, she's found the one shrink who deals with kids in the woods of Vermont. And she says something to me about, you know, you could make more of an effort with your father, you know. And I said, well, mom, he doesn't really, you know, he comes home for dinner and then he retreats to his study and that's the end of him for the night. I said, he doesn't really talk to me either. And, and you had siblings. And I had siblings, two brothers, two brothers, two brothers both younger. They were Either more, of them gay? Uh, one is. Right. And with both of them, he could do more boy type stuff. I mean, he he was always doing the right thing. So he'd come home from his day at work. He'd offer to play catch. I didn't really want to play so catch. So your brother, your other brother who was gay, at least he was bodybuilding in the gym. Yeah, at least he, he was wasn't tr- pouring tea. Yeah, he was trying <laughs> to be, he was trying to be what everybody <laughs> wanted him to be. I, I was the, the first one. I was a pl- definitely a, trying to be a people pleaser, but I invented myself before them, They before right. they came along. So I just actually thought that I was supposed to do things I liked doing, but that's really not true. But you were true. more willful. Right. So, she, so on the way to the shrink, this day, she says to me, the situation with your father is totally your fault. I mean, you're the one who's not. I mean, you're the problem. if you're the problem, if you actually engaged this wonderful stand-up guy, right. he'd be. He's locked in that study because of you. <laughs> exactly. So years later, I said to her, I said to her, I really thought I needed to like, talk, I wanted to talk to her about that because, n- not because I wanted to blame her. She didn't know what was coming down the pike any more than anyone else did. But I, I said to her, you know, I just I wanted to tell you this story and I wanted to tell you how much this story lives with me all the time. And she looked at me and she said, "You know what is so wonderful about you, Philip?" 
And I knew something really shitty was going to come down the flag. She said, what's wonderful about you is your active imagination. I just love it. And so she just denied it, shut it down. She couldn't even say, I mean, as any right-thinking adult would say, like, you know, it's a one-car drive. It was just to say, wow. I don't, I mean, obviously, she wouldn't remember it, but just to say, wow, it's so great that you remember that. I'm so sorry if that if I made you feel that way. I mean, she didn't. But the idea that you were asked to do the understanding. Oh, yeah. The Always. idea that you were asked to do the reaching. I think the only way to survive in my family was to triangulate stuff. There's no way that my mother or my father was ever going to look at me and go, good boy. So... The best I could do was sort of create a triangle out of the two of them and try to play each other, play them off against each other enough to get a little tiny bit of attention that way. Or to diffuse. You you might be a horrible kid, but at least you're not as horrible as this or that. Did you feel that you were a horrible kid? Oh, awful. I felt ashamed of myself. Because you were gay or just that you didn't have their approval in general? It worked its way to in general, but we had two big secrets in the family. One was my mother was clearly saying there's something very wrong with you. I didn't even have know the word. I didn't know that the problem with me was that it would end up with me being attracted to other boys. That didn't even, I mean, I'm seven or eight. I didn't even get that. But I knew that was problem number one. Right. Your sexuality. And the problem number two was that we had a father who was going through the motions but would then disappear. But we were never allowed to let anyone know that our family in private was any different from anybody else. It was like a Bronte novel. Yeah. Yeah. So there were two big secrets, and they were both really... I mean, now I know we've all got secrets. What's so great is when you get to a point and you realize you had two secrets and Emily had two secrets and Tom had two secrets and we all had two secrets and or three and (laughs) we had to somehow march through the world. Yeah, march through the world. And and diffuse. And diffuse. Your mother wanted you to attempt to reach your father in a way that she could not One Christmas, and this was one of the things that I once later tried to talk to her about, too. She said to me on Christmas Eve, I I knew, I was old enough to know that, you know, we were pretty pretty well off. So they, everything was, there was never, uh, we were never wanting for anything. And they almost overdid it to overcompensate for all the stuff they knew they weren't doing. So... I don't know where the hell my dad would ask on where on Christmas Eve at seven o'clock or eight o'clock. My dad is at large and my brothers are getting into bed. And I say to my mother, I can help you bring the presents because there were so many presents, lots and lots of presents. And she said to me, oh, I didn't I haven't gotten any of the presents yet. And I would have been like 10. And she said, I said, well, but mom, everything is going to be closed. 
And and and, and, uh, and tomorrow's you know, Christmas. And tomorrow's Christmas. And I was thinking, actually, and I feel like maybe I wasn't always so shitty because I actually think I was thinking of my brothers. And I thought, well, what are, what are we going to do? And she said, I don't know because I don't have any money either. And I ran upstairs and through, you know, being a shitty kid, through stealing from my father's pants every night, you know, and putting things together. I maybe had like $40 or $50 hidden away. And I came down and brought it to her. And she thought that that was funny and wonderful that I had been generous, but she didn't see any of this the, money I stole from dad. Let's use that. She didn't see the trauma of how scary it was for me to think there wasn't going to be any Christmas and what in the happened? family. So there were no presents under the oh, tree no, no, the next there day. Were t- there were tons. Where, when did they come in? She she had just lied. She thought it was like a funny thing. I mean, oh. my mother would treated me like very she much like I should you. have been an adult and understood. Of course, there were presents, you. but she wasn't going to involve me in bringing them down. It would all happen later when I was in bed too. But I had a nervous breakdown, and because I thought there this would be the year there wasn't going to be Christmas and in the Galanis household. And she thought she's I can sort of remember her laughing and 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 at the time I think I was just profoundly relieved. But it's the kind of thing where you can spend you know, months on a story like that at the shrink. You know, who was wearing what? Where did gonna, they say that? Where I'm going to write a movie. I'm going <laughs> to steal that from a movie. Now, you went to boarding school where? I went to boarding school at this place called Deerfield Academy. Right, right, right. But at the time when I went in the in the 70s and 80s, it was still all boys. So it was kind of— Was it heaven for you? No, no. It was really—they were dumb boys. Oh. It's, so, it's so funny because— why would you not make a school co-ed? I mean, it's like if you do make something co-ed, the first thing you do is you get rid of the really bad ones on the bottom and all the boats rise up because all the girls are bright and then you keep the bright boys. But this was a place that was like a, a nesting pen for like lesser semi-retarded Rockefellers. And so it was... People that they wanted out of the house. Yeah. They were shelving them. Yeah. It was, it was a weird little school. And also, what you picked this up, it kind of a weird impulse. If you're sending a boy to a school to butch him up a little bit and see if there's like a last-ditch effort to make him straight... Why in God's name would you choose an all-boys school yeah, to do it? Yeah. It's a very strange. It's raining men is playing in the background. Yeah. <laughs> all the teachers are cl- – not all, but you know, a good percentage of them in, in my day. Where they were all – you've read about Choate in yes. the – yeah. Well, it was like Sad. that. They were, But, of course, the teachers, the Closet Kate's teachers – they're never coming after – I mean, I would – you know, had elaborate fantasies at 15 about, you know, the man who taught English. He was like my dreamboat. But they would, of course, be after the lacrosse players who didn't have – you know, it, and it's a terrible – I don't mean to you be joking about years. it. I was about there for four years and there were good things that Did happened it there too. Did while you were there? Did you – no, developer it was positive. Sta- no, it stayed. <laughs> to me, it was a wonderful place because it took me out of a household where I felt ashamed every time I turned around. But I, what I learned to do there was to create a public 
persona. When I first got there, I thought, oh, my God, I am going to be toast. These guys are going to beat me up. They're going to tease the hell out of me. It's going to be really tough. They're going to alienate you. But very quickly, I saw that if I could be eccentric and if I could be funny and if I could be a little bright and unfortunately, the funny that they crave in an environment like that is mean funny. So I developed not the good-hearted sense of humor, but I, I took a page out of your mother's humor book and my mother's humor book, which was a kind of Betty Davis meanness. But it, I learned how to survive. I learned how to well, survive. It's, 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 what I call, it's what I call my Granville Thorndike theory. <laughs> exactly. and, and I always say that you could be amongst the most filthy, flea-bitten, you know, just moronic rabble. And if you can entertain them, you buy yourself. They take yeah. the noose off your neck. You Absolutely. I mean? And I met a couple of kids there who really became good friends. I mean, they were. it was the first time I really made good friends. And there were a couple of teachers there who were really encouraging. And so, yeah, uh, in, on balance, it was a very positive experience for me, mostly because I think my dad's situation at home, even though nobody would – talk about it, he was sort of slowly getting more uh, depressed. And I I was not forced to worry about that. So you go off to go to college? So so uh, I go off to go to college. Where do you go? I go to Yale. Was that a fait accompli? Did you want to go to Yale? Or were there other places you want to go? My parents were really, really interesting that way. My parents didn't care at all I want you to understand the kind of well-off they were. My parents were well-off because my dad's father, who was a Greek immigrant who came to this country. Was Onassis. And no, no, no. (laughs) His job was to go around and take the pennies and nickels out of, you know, gumball machines and and, and, collect uh, money and collect money and deliver it to somebody. And he got where he got by working 20 hours a day. And my dad was, you know, largely employed by him and my dad's brother was. He, so they he, built it into a big company? They, they they built it. They bought real estate in right. Vermont. They invested. And, then, and, they were, and they were really, really hardworking. The idea that they had a kid who wanted to study Emily Dickinson. Is that what you, is that what you studied at Yale? Literature? Yes, I was literature. They didn't think that was good. Education was very, very highly regarded, but they certainly didn't – they thought that I was maybe taking it a bit far. So when you go to Yale, what was Yale like? Yale was heaven. If I could send everyone <laughs> – if, if I could give everyone the, the, the four years if that I had If you could only there, go to Yale. Yeah. Yes. I had the be- – I mean – It worked for you. It really worked for me. People didn't want me to be – Anything different than I was. I got to stop lying. People were like, well, yeah, well, of course you're gay. It's obvious you're gay. Who cares? Right. Um, what was the gay scene like at Yale then? Jodie Foster and me. <laughs> it was okay. like, it was heaven. Okay, she was around. So it was, no, it was the wonderful, yeah. it was sort of, it was all, yeah, it was a great time. And the student and What, the four classes, years were you there? Um, from 1981 to 1985. Oh, so you're five years younger than I am. Yeah, Got okay. It. So that period comes to an end. And, and as it comes to an end, who are you? 
Well, at that, well, what happened that you're going to become an attorney? Well, no, no, no. I'm so not oh, going to okay. become an attorney. I go and take my first job, which is working at the New York Times right. as a copy boy. They have these oh, – this is like you know, 1986 or so, 87. They have these fat old men who sit behind desks and they rip a piece of paper off and they go, international. And they hand it to me and my job is I walk it to the international desk. And then I walk back to the old man, and he rips another piece off, and he goes, culture! And he hands it to me. It's like a Hector MacArthur play. Yeah. yeah. I'm there for like two weeks, and I'm going, get, get yeah, me. Very jaunty. Get me out of yeah. here. This isn't working. So it did, and, and I'm also not a journalist, really, because they would encourage us to go write stories after hours. And lots of people would want to go to, you know, there'd be a shooting and they'd want to figure out who did it or where, how it happened or why. I came alive at Christmas. Remember in the Metropolitan section, there used to be this, these, this little feature called Remember the Neediest? And we'd yes, go yes, yes, to yes, there. Yes, yes. I'd go up sure. to Harlem. They still have that. I'd go up to Harlem and I'd sit in the room and I'd think, I want to understand how these people – got to this place? How do they feel about this? And so I was always interested in the personality, the dynamics. And like the woman is sitting there, is she angry that she's, you know, she's got this terrible uh, school system for her disabled daughter? Is she, does she, does she just, does she want help? Is, Is the husband helping? Where is the husband? How did all this happen? Those were the kind of stories that I liked. And so like within a few weeks, they sent me up to work for Carrie Donovan in the magazine. And I thought that that was going to be what I would do. And then my dad killed himself. Coming up, Philip Galanis looks back on an interview with former President Barack Obama and Emmy Award-winning actor Brian Cranston. In the literary world, few names hold more weight than the New Yorker's longtime editor, David Remnick. As a writer, I take too much time clearing my throat in the beginning of a piece, and I hope I've learned myself to get rid of a lot of the crap. But very often, my editor, Henry Finder, will just very quietly take a pen. He's your editor. Oh, yeah. That's who edits you. Oh, yeah, and he's great. He's unbelievable. To hear more about David Remnick's story, go to heresthething.org. Hi, I'm Alec Baldwin. Don't you think it's cool to care? Carrie Yuma knows fast fashion's not sustainable and decided to spin that conscious mindset to create high-quality, low-impact sneakers. Their best-selling Akka style is the perfect, durable sneaker for dressing up or down, pairing a fresh look with broken-in level comfort. Akka is made with organic cotton canvas and ethically sourced rubber, and every pair comes with Karayuma's signature cork and Mamona oil insoles. Akka's already found its way into my summer shoe rotation. Find your pair and choose from a range of bold and beautiful colors. Right now, there's 15% off at C-A-R-I-U-M-A dot com slash Alec. With how much we rely on our devices, it's easy to forget about the hardware we're born with. Take ears. Like fingerprints, your ears are totally unique. Too bad your earbuds aren't. 
unless you've got Ultimate Ears Fits True Wireless Custom Fit Earbuds. Ultimate Ears Fits offer premium sound and all-day comfort. Their groundbreaking lifeform technology guarantees a perfect fit in only 60 seconds. Just put in the earbuds, connect to the app, and watch as the purple LEDs form the earbuds to your unique shape. With 8 hours of continuous playback on a single charge and up to 20 hours with the charging case, Ultimate Ears Fits are the perfect choice for listening to your favorite music and podcast all day long without pain or discomfort. For a limited time, get 15% off above the current offer of your pair of Ultimate Ears Fits True Wireless Earbuds at ue.com slash fits. Just use promo code FITS at checkout. That's 15% off the current offer with promo code FITS at ue.com slash FITS. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Philip Galanis's mom once blamed him for his father's depression, but he didn't let that stifle him. After receiving a phone call from his uncle that his father had ended his life, Philip sprang into action. Immediately, I came home, went back to Vermont, and I'll tell you something that I've never said out loud before. I found out the morning after I'd had my first one-night stand. So all through the night, my not my mother because she was so zonked out. My mom was um, – any any resentment I have for my mom disappears in a second if I think of her walking out that back door and having to find her husband. having In just, the yard. In the yard. Having shot his head off with a rifle. And Which you all thought was inevitable. You thought you thought that was coming anyway. Well, I, or you weren't sure. I, I don't think anyone thought it was coming. Oh, there you go. There I think you go. everyone okay. thought he's. You know, he was the guy who did the right thing. Although he went to work every day, he came home. He'd throw catch for he'd half tough an it hour, out. and his then depression. he'd go and he'd sit and he'd watch television. He was never night. treated for his depression formally. Never. He. He. I think my mother tried to intervene a few times, but this is before Prozac. Beyond right, but so no, no shrinks, no therapy. He. He was not a talk therapy okay. person. Okay. You have to be a. You have to be a verbal Inclined person. For that, yeah. yeah, and medicine back then was rough. And it would, you know, it would totally wipe you out. Sure. So I'm off having my first one-night stand, and my uncle, my mother's brother, is trying to reach me, trying to reach me, and I— Before cell phones. This is all way before yeah. cell phones. This is, yeah, 1987. So he is—everyone's trying to reach me. Where is he? Where is he? Where is he? Where is he? And I come— in to work and I'm on the Upper West Side with the person I just met and it was I thought wow this is so great I mean because the other thing I should say is at Yale people we were all we talked about being gay a lot but there wasn't a lot of nobody was doing a lot so um, it, I was very sexually inexperienced I thought oh my god this is the most miraculous thing I'm having sex yeah. it's great and then the next morning I walk into work and I see every eye is on me. And I'm thinking, wow, can they tell that I've just had sex? <laughs> and I thought, they're wow. They're staring at me because like, I'm really, glowing. They're really, this is uh, I'm clearly, walking on yeah, air. I'm walking on air. And what really has happened is my uncle has been trying to, has been calling every 15 minutes for the last hour looking for me. And so I get to my little copy boy station and I... I'm pulled aside 
by a woman called Marie, who is the copy boy dead mother. <laughs> dead mother. She takes me into a room and says, I need you to call your uncle, and I'm going to give you some space. I'm going to give you my office. And I'm thinking... Doesn't feel right. This doesn't feel right, but my but my impulse went to my mother's dead, and um, because why? why? Because that would have been the end of. I mean, because she was my jailer. She's my jailer, but she's also my savior and everything. And when I reach my uncle and he says, "Your father is dead," and this is. Something I feel terribly guilty about for you know the next ten years. I think, phew, it wasn't my mother. She's okay, and then it sinks in that my father's dead. And there, the, he, he when a pres when such a big part of your life is really is it, it, it's is really more of an absence than a presence it was really complicated to know what to feel i mean i he was a wonderful man he never yeah. did a mean thing decent in the guy. world he's a decent guy he's but, miserable but i just didn't have any i didn't have you know i didn't it was like in the chorus line i, was gonna I, say, I had to it's find like nothing another, yeah it's like nothing yeah. it's like i'm yeah. i'm mr morales yeah, i feel the air i feel the cold or mr whatever yeah and i go to grand central i get on a train I get on a train that's going the wrong way. I get on a train that's not going. I mean, I, I'm an, I, I've taken this train ride a thousand times. My uncle lives in Westport. All I had to do to, was to get from Grand Central to Westport, and for some reason, I, I get on the. I'm so uh, I, I'm so shaken by it that I get on. I don't know. I'm going to Westchester or something <laughs> like that. Finally, I get there, and we get to. My my uncle picks me up. He's an uh, my uncle is still alive, and he's in, he is the the loveliest man. Your mother's my brother. mother's brother. He's an ophthalmologist. He was an ophthalmologist and a great great guy. The first sort of gay person I didn't know because he had a tenant. And I was thinking, and now you think like, well, he's a surgeon. Why does he need a tenant in his house. But that's how it was told to us. And so for a very long time, <laughs> he has a tenant in his house. Um, and so he drives me to Vermont and everyone is administered a uh, Valium. I don't know why. I mean, I guess they thought we all needed it. Yeah, like dinner mints. They were like, we were just, they gave us Valium. Some, like some and for several days, people just kept giving us more Valium. Like that was the thing oh we needed. God. But, and it was then, it was then that I thought, I need to grow up. I need to become the man now. So that's what made me go to Yale Law School. I did, I had, I would never have gone to Isn't law school except for this. Because well, I, what was the feeling to find that boot? Because you're so smart. You you, you go, I'm going to man up here or whatever yeah, you want to do. I'm, Why did you be quite going to Yale? Because you weren't going to have a career that was a serious career. Because I was going to have a career that was going to be serious. You did well was, at Yale. Oh, yeah. And getting into law school was not a problem. Not a problem. Bang, you're in Yale Law School. Bang. And you and go. And I go. And <sighs> I, I made a life-changing decision based on... Some, you and I switched places. It's like I was going to go to law some, school and I go, I'm going to be an actor. And I went, yeah. bang, and I became an actor. That's some weird. Some stupid uh, sort of emotional 
I had some like little some little thing in the back of my head said this was important and this was not important and this would be what a man would do and this would be what a oh, oh, this, this is, is responsible what, this is responsibility this is what my dad doing doing the right thing doing the right in thing in honor of my dad maybe became going to law school so when you go to law school and and you're there are you choking it down that it's tough no. or do you fall in love with it can i tell you Again, I would say, I, I sound like an advertisement for Yale, but it was, I've never been in ro- a room with so many smart, engaged people, and they're only talking about things that are interesting. That You're matter. talking about the Constitution. That matter. You're talking about things yeah. that really matter. It was the first time, I mean, this is in the no- early 90s, and we're talking about what we are now dealing with issues that we're now dealing with the warehousing of men of color in the prisons Ooh. instead of i mean Ooh. and we're really seriously Serious grappling problem. grappling yeah. with this stuff and i loved it and then i graduated and it is the worst most mind numbing work you can being practicing the lawyer law. practicing law it's a fait accompli you're going to go to some top firm they recruited you can i tell you tell me a smarter person, a person who would have considered more, would have been less whorish than I was. I, In I what regard? At, I looked at the firms and I said, what, what firm was paying what? So I was interested in the top 10 firms who were paying the most. In terms of lucrative yeah. pay. And I, I just go. And what kind of work do they have you doing year one? In the, the very beginning, I'm working in mergers and acquisitions. And it could not be less – I don't understand anything that's going on. Because I'd been talking about the 14th Amendment for three years. <laughs> yeah. Before and that, of, Emily Dickinson. Yeah. And all of a sudden, they're saying, take a look at the balance sheet. Make sure they can really afford this note. And I'm thinking – what note is that? I'm, th- I'm looking yeah. for like the note that Miss So and So passed to somebody else. <laughs> or I'm playing the piano yeah, and fingering exactly. that note. Like the note. So quickly, very very quickly, I get myself transferred to the entertainment department. Where well done. Where so I'm thinking, okay, well you this can is, breathe. <laughs> I'm just like, okay, I've got to work out a royalty. The pool. lunches are more fun. Yeah, I can do this. I work with mostly with theater and fine arts and music. And you, and I don't want to get too greatest hits here, but then you wind up working with. I'm working with amazing clients. I'm working with Stephen Sondheim. Exactly. That's what I was leading up to. I'm working with Jerry Herman. I'm working with Lincoln Center Theater. Huge Broadway I'm with, icons. Uh, yeah, I'm working with Scott Rudin. Um, I really thought this is fantastic. This is about as good as it could get. And after two years of it, I'm realizing, oh, if I go look at what Stephen Sondheim's personal assistant is doing and I look at what I'm doing, there's really not that big a difference. Being a lawyer, unless you're doing something that it's very ad hoc. It is very ad hoc. And working on the 14th uh, revival of Company by, a, you know— The contracts. Yeah, the great doing the contracts and working out the royalty pools. And is Wendy Wasserstein going to fly business class or coach? Right. It's not fascinating, but I'm getting paid a lot. So right. I'm going, well, I think this is what I want. I want to be paid. We're not talking about the Constitution yeah. anymore. I want, yeah, it's I, small. I want to be paid, but it's very small. Mm. And so I thought, okay, the way I'm going to bridge this— because um, my parents are also very big, or my mother at this point is also very big on everybody 
pulls their own weight. You were given a wonderful first-class education and now you will pay. You'll support yourself. Go off into the world. Go. So it wasn't like I could have the, had the luxury. I mean, good people, truly good people, better people than I do would go work for the ACLU and they would live in a land – so they'd live in Massapequa and they would take the train in and they'd work for $40,000 a year and they'd do work that they really cared about. But I was a little too whorish for that and so I wanted like to stay – Like me in my business, yeah. I wanted yeah. to stay working at a firm where was I was going to get paid. But, but here's what's interesting to me. From the moment I met you, you know, you're like Cavett. You know, this is really bright and there's wit and there's warmth. There's everything sewn into that fabric. And when I met you, I thought, God, this guy's just so fun to talk to. You know, I mean, he's so bright and funny and, and interesting. Back at you. When, when are you there? Does someone see that in you? Does someone tap you on the shoulder and go, you got to get out of here? Or do you just do that for yourself? No, what happens is I, I start thinking the way I'm going to bridge all this is that I'm going to do something creative on my own. So I'm going to wake up. At, I'm going to set my alarm at 5 o'clock every morning, and I'm going to start writing a novel. I've got a novel to write. And uh, that is going to be the thing I really care about. And I'm going to go into Paul Weiss or, you know, whatever legal job I am, am in that's going to pay the bills for living on in the, the apartment that I live in. And I do it. And I wait. I mean, because the one great quality I think I have is discipline. Mm. I set that alarm clock and I'm up at 5 o'clock in the oh. morning. So for two hours I'd write and then I'd go into work and I publish the novel and it is a 100% failure. It gets, bl- <laughs> it gets brilliant be, reviews. Does it make you go, go running back into the arms <laughs> of the law firm? <laughs> yeah, it gets great, great reviews. And Barnes & Noble makes me a discover great new writers. And Sonny Meta at Knopf is like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm very proud of the book. Everybody's like, this is going to be, I mean, we're going to sell this book to the movies. We're going to, and Absolutely nothing happens. I'm like, it's like dropping a feather into a well and waiting for the noise Blink. when it hits the bottom. <laughs> <A> little, <laughs> and then there's, there ain't no noise. But all of a sudden, out of comes a call from an editor at the New York Times who says, please come and write for us. What do they want you to write? Well, at the time I was working for a company that was owned by uh, Lorne Michaels and Barry Diller and Dick Snyder called Golden Books. Uh-huh. Golden You're Books Family Entertainment. Right. And the more it failed, the higher I rose because, <laughs> you know, smart people would leave. But I kind of thought they were all interesting personalities and I stayed. And How long were you there? Um, I was there until it failed so badly it went into bankruptcy court and then I negotiated the sale of the thing to various enterprises. Uh, so so that's where I am. Right. And the New York Times calls. And I thought, well, this is really, really interesting. And first they wanted me to do a column, you know, one of those you'd know everything about me and my boyfriend and my dog and it was supposed to be about my life the life right. of a you know a metropolitan right. gentleman philip in new york yeah going around to the movies and what i saw at the theater and i thought people will be so fucking <laughs> bored with that. It's like it's like <laughs> i can see that for three weeks they said come in with a list i'm of, gonna call you philip go lightly from now on they said come with a list of 25 columns that you'll write 
And Holly Galamas. And I could come in with like I wrote three. I had three, and I thought, I thought I know what I need to do. I need to switch the pitch on this. And I said, you know, I think people would be a lot more interested if they could write into me for advice. And they said that is the tackiest idea we've ever heard. <laughs> we of. Don't do that. Thank you very much. Yeah. You can show yourself the door. And then they thought about it some, and we did it. What was the column called? It's called Social Cues. It Social still Cues. runs to this day. It's me and you giving were, advice. And you were the founder. And I was the founder of it. And then that grew into I developed a show at HBO. I developed a show at CBS. We developed shows about an advice columnist who's, you know, a little right. – Got a little spring in his step. A little bottle rocket. At every single place. In t- never, it's never seen the light of day because it shouldn't, because it's a show about an advice columnist. But no, no, but um, so you're back at the Times, and what was the gap in between? Oh, 20 years It was more. a 20-year gap. So how is the Times different when you to- go back? Well, now they're all— I mean, obviously it's different, but I mean, what, what, what's but your description? Back then, they're it humbled. was— it was yeah. They're, they yeah, were they were, they were so grand. Yeah. They were in this big shabby building, and everybody was jostling next to each other. They yeah. were a little tight for space. People were the phone was ringing off the hook. Now you go back, and it's really. I mean, it's the it's not the failing New York Times, no. but it's like all media. It's. Boy, there sure are some empty. The cautious desks. New York there Times. There sure are some empty desks it's the around cautious here. New York Times. And there, how do we deal with this? But, how, I, but I want to interject something. This is so interesting. We have Jill Abramson on the show, and she was very gracious. And she was, of course, more uh, um, disclosive than anybody in that position before. And New York Magazine reports that uh, Sulzberger was complaining to people that she talks too much to the press. She's too out there in that role. He doesn't like that. She's too media-centric. And he cited her appearance on my show that he didn't like that. And I thought to myself, all we did was kiss the ass of the times. I mean, I am somebody who I have a very separate relationship, and I'm kind of proud of myself that I read the times every day. I'm a big fan of the times. I just don't like when I read my name in the times. Yeah. Well, it's a big It's a big part of the change that we're talking about in the 30-year period. It was before the advent of celebrity journalism. People, right. There was there – was, Maybe did People Magazine maybe had just started right. when we when was I young. when I was yeah. first there, yeah. and now that is what the news is. <sighs> the news is in, you, you're the news. I mean, it's very hard. I admire the guys and women who are up there. I mean, and I and I personally, by the way, think Jill Abramson was tremendous because yeah, I, yeah. she also had a great people sense. When yeah. I got, I started doing this other. I used the social cues column to sort of segue into the table for three column, which you've done with me. Right. And um, when I would get somebody really amazing, like Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Gloria Steinem, she would send a little note. Or when I would get a good get, she would say, it, would, it was only a line, and she, but she was the head of this huge thing. But she was seeing, it, it's so important when you're working. I like Jill. When yeah. you're working at a place like that to have someone say, I see you. That's all they have to say. Yeah. I see you and I like what you're doing. And I feel like they're, they're under so much siege now because reporting couldn't, there couldn't be a more important time for it. Right. Do you consider yourself political in the work you do, in the writing you do, in the, sh- in well, the, in the interviews you do? Well, now... It is such a it's a, such an interesting time because right. I was getting I was getting good gets in the political world. I was 
I got the president. I got the president. I got Nancy Pelosi. I got... To do Table for Three. For Table for Three. Who did Obama do it with? Obama did it with Brian Cranston. <laughs> he, what was that like, the three of them? Well, the three... The, the, I mean, it was... It was the, the reason it happened, I think, Johnson. was the Johnson movie. And I think the Obama press people were starting to think about legacy. And they were trying to create a parallel track. And I tried it, to get Obama on this show. I, oh, he was fantastic. I mean, yeah. we talked about, you'd love it, because we talked about, we talked about fathers. I'll get it. We talked about guys who, who were really raised without fathers, whose most important role in life, they felt, was being a father. And it was really touching. And yeah. I was uh, really nervous. Yeah. But, but I mean, so this column has really gotten some great political figures, Elizabeth Warren, Christian Gillibrand. I mean, we've gotten all the great Ones were any of that was any of that was, there, was it ever difficult? Was there any friction with anybody? Um, was well, Mitch the, McConnell well, coming? The with, problem uh, was David the prob- Duke. The problem is I have not been able to crack Republicans. Right, okay, you're a gay I, lawyer I, from Yale. They, they, they should the want They should. Yeah. Why the fuck would I want to have lunch with you? <laughs> I know. So did you do Trump? Have you interviewed Trump? No, I have not interviewed Trump. I tr- I was very close. Not I don't want to say very close because I don't know how close I was really. I was really close to getting Ivanka Trump, uh-huh. which I thought would have been very interesting yeah. during the campaign. You're a super bright woman. But the world has switched so much that – I mean – and I had never understood how much – I mean I think for you it's very different. But for me, it was an, an access game and my access to certain – people pipelines has totally dried up and i really would love nothing i would love to get mitch mcconnell i mean i'm not i mean and if you read the table for three you know it's now it's what you're saying you're never in the hot seat i don't want to put him in a gotcha moment i want to think tell us what you want us to know tell us how you're thinking about this so that we can understand it better and since I'm so interested in, in, in the subject's childhoods and what their relationships with their parents were, as you are, I think you can do it in a, in a way, you can get with political people in a way that trumps their politics. In a recent Social Cues column, a reader complained about having his table at a restaurant given to a D-list celebrity. In response, Philip Galanis did what he does best, put things in perspective through prose. Take solace in the words of Emily Dickinson, he wrote. How dreary to be somebody. How public like a frog to tell one's name the live-long June to an admiring bog. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. about mcdonald's all day can't get it off my mind i can already taste it Ooh, got my mind on my mouth and my mouth ready for some mickey d's deal there's a deal for every moment at mcdonald's right now get two of your favorites for just 350 mix and match a classic mcchicken a hot and spicy mcchicken or a juicy mcdouble price and participation may vary cannot be combined with combo meal single item at regular price i'm tamara pridgett And I'm Adrienne Herbert, and we're the hosts of Sweat the Details, a new podcast from Under Armour and iHeartRadio. Each week, we'll talk to top-performing women in fitness, sport, and science. 
It's a podcast by women for women, here to shake up the conversation about women in sport. Listen to Sweat the Details on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.